Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 20th, 2021. I'm talking to you, as always, from the fair city of San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Um, a few days ago, probably a little bit more than a week, there was, of course, the Summit for Democracy in uh, Washington, D.C., at least virtually, uh, President Joe Biden's attempt to revitalize democracies around the world. Um, a lot's happened since then. Uh, Biden seems even more politically hobbled than he was then. The event didn't get particularly good press, as most of the things that Biden is doing recently. And one area that was particularly intriguing were the people who weren't invited. Being savaged, I think, by Joe Biden is rather like being savaged by a sheep. Uh, but he did try to savage one regime in uh, Europe, and that was the Orban regime in Hungary. Uh, they were not invited to the summit. I'm sure they weren't too bothered, but Hungary was singled out. Even the Serbs got an invitation, which is quite an achievement to be considered uh, more democratic than the Serbs. Uh, Orban, of course, um, is a notorious uh, right-wing authoritarian. Whether or not he's a Democrat is arguable. The headlines today are about him apparently suggesting that Europeans um, uh, in the EU have no right to their country, language, culture, family, and their God. I guess he's making his claim to ruling the EU. He's about to meet with President Macron of, uh, of France. Uh, and uh, he has suggested that in the post-Merkel EU, the gloves are off. One person who has been very perceptive, I think, in understanding Orban um, and this new conflict, I guess, between him and particularly Macron is my guest today. Dorit uh, Geva is a professor at Central European University. It was a university that was based um, in Hungary. Uh, Orban shut it down. It's now in Vienna. And uh, Dorit Geva uh, is, uh, is talking to us from her home in Vienna. Dorit, welcome. This Orban character, you were originally uh, from Budapest. Tell me a little bit about Orban. What is your take on him? You've done a lot of writing and thinking about this man. Sure. Well, I should clarify that actually I'm originally from Canada. Oh. Uh, the CEU is a, a very international university. We were based in, in Budapest, and I did live there for a good while. Um, well, where to begin? Uh, where to begin? Uh, Viktor Orban is a uh, um, I think a, a, a really in, I, I have to admit a very innovative political thinker who is forging uh, a path in his own image within Hungary, within the region, uh, within Europe, and even globally. 
And uh, what I find very interesting as a political analyst, I'm, I'm a political sociologist, is that uh, it's very difficult to use conventional categories that we got used to from the 20th century to try to identify what kind of figure this is. So people like me have been spending quite a bit of time in recent years trying to work it out, try, trying to figure out what, it, what is this political creature? What does he represent? What are his ideologies? Um, and I think even how is he changing 21st century political categories? Yeah, it's not just you. you you've come up with a term, um, Dorit, ordonationalism. Ordonationalism, which is quite uh, innovative. It's not just you. I mean, you're politically on the left, you're a sociologist trained at NYU. But Tucker Carlson is also very interested in Orban. Uh, and the internationalist conservative movement seems to have flocked almost like uh, Catholics flocked to Rome to learn from the great man. What's striking about me to about him is that he began as a dissident. He was funded famously by George Soros to teach at Oxford University. And then he bit the hand of his liberal friends. Why and how did that happen? Well, um, there it's hard to know what Viktor Orban really represented in the 1980s. I mean, we we have to imagine that he he's a figure who is uh, is younger than the the generation of Faklev Havel, for example. So he was he he gained fame uh, in Hungary actually as as a dissident student leader at the very end of the socialist regime at the very end of the socialist era. There was a particular rally in Budapest um, in which he he uh, spoke uh, at actually one of, one of the most symbolic central squares in Budapest and made a speech that really uh, was at the time was a dissident uh, anti-socialist, especially anti-Soviet speech. And, and that was that was the, the moment that made him. He became a national name in Hungary. Um, and then with a, a bunch of students around him, some of whom are, were old childhood friends, they, they quickly moved in the post-socialist era to, to creating uh, what, what is, the, is the name is the liberal party, the liberal movement. So initially he seemed like a liberal dissident. Um, but I think that we have to, we have to imagine uh, a figure who enters into the post-1989 world um, this is this is the world of uh, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and the Third Way, uh, and he's looking around like almost like a Martian um, or an outsider. You know, an outsider who sure gets a scholarship from from uh, the Open Society from George Soros and spends time in Oxford, um, but I, I think uh, given the incredibly uh, high intelligence of the man looks around and it's not a pre-given to him that he needs to decide, well, this is the way the world is. We have the Democrats, we have the Republicans, we have the Tories, we have the Labour Party. I think he, he, he looks around and he says, well, what are we going to be? I don't, we don't have to be any, any of these pre-given categories because right. this is a new world. So, um, so, so I don't, I'm not sure that it's, I don't even think that when we think of him um, in, in, this, in the 1980s or the early 1990s, that he really 
already then was what we would we would consider uh, a real liberal or a leftist or right. a, well, I, I think it's it's particularly interesting Dorit, that he, he's evading traditional ca- uh, categories and he isn't alone uh, many years ago I was uh, a student at the London School of Economics taught by a man called uh, George Shofflin who at that point we all thought was a a liberal Hungarian dissident. He turned out to be, I think, one of the founding members of Orban's organization, a right-wing Hungarian nationalist, went back, died this year or last year. Um, so it's not just Orban. It's a generational thing. And, and your point that this generation in a post-1989 world looked around and blinked and didn't understand the world they're in is is a really important one. I think you you you're one of the the foremost analysts of what you call conservative radicalism. So it's a conservative, um, a, a radical kind of conservatism that doesn't fall into the the categories of the of of the Cold War. Is that fair? Yes. And I, well, I think even more so that they don't fall into the categories of the um, post, immediate post Cold War era. So, Orban, for example, I, I have a, um, I found in an archive at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna um, a speech, or a, 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 yes, a speech that he made in, in um, 1999. So, this was an event that was a, celebrating. A, a decade to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And he says very explicitly in this speech that uh, the, the third way treats the state as if the state is a bad thing. And, and he doesn't take it as a pre-given that a strong state is a bad thing. So there's, I think there's a hybrid there. where yeah, it's, actually, a Len- it's a Leninist assault on the state. Is- and in an interesting aside, uh, I don't know if you saw the, the review by David Runciman of a latest biography of Peter Thiel in the no. London Review of Books. But Runciman also focuses on the way in which conservatives like Thiel and Trump and Orban have incorporated a kind of Leninism to seize the state in their own interests. Absolutely, exactly. So I think that exactly the for, for Orban, you know, and in that way, he he took bits from the Cold War, from the concept of the social of the state as being the locus of power, and he's looking around post nineteen eighty nine at people like Tony Blair, and he's thinking, why on earth would you give this up? I mean, why why would you privatize everything? You know, why 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 would you transform the state into such a hollow entity that it's no more the locus of power? So, so on the so there's a social conservatism. And there is uh, what he also takes as part of his hybridity is a very a very strong commitment to market society. I mean, he's he's a very he's a very pro capitalist figure, but there is no contradiction for him between the, a strong state and uh, and a strong market society. On the contrary, uh, and that's that's what I tried to put together in this piece that you cited on Ordo nationalism, which is to try to find put together these pieces of Sure, what you what you one might call uh, a kind of Leninism, a strong state Leninism, but also a commitment to to market capitalism. Ironically, you might think of it as a, a, a digital Leninism. You've also written on the revolutionary quality of, of, of 
virtual currencies uh, in crypto, uh, which, of course, Peter Thiel and, and other right wing figures in Silicon Valley are investors and supporters of. Is there a connection between what in Silicon Valley is described as the the radical disruption of crypto and other Web3 technologies and characters like Orban and his use of power to seize control of the state? Uh, I actually think that they're quite different. Uh, I mean, I, you're, I am very interested in crypto, which is something that I continue to think a lot about. And I think a lot about it in relation to the power of the state. Uh, and, and, but, and I do think that, of course, there's a disruptive element because, of course, a very central uh, element of the state is the capacity to extract revenues. I mean, the state depends on revenues. And that is disruptive. On the other hand, blockchain technology and the distributive nature of cryptos, I think, are actually not very conducive to collective political action. And, uh, and in that sense, I, I, I don't think that the, its disruptive nature and the, the claims that it's going to you know, transform the world as we know it, I, I don't, actually don't, I don't buy that aspect of, of the... But do you uh, think in a, in a sort of curious way, if Marx was around, he might make sense of this in an interesting way, that crypto is a clever backdoor way of seizing control of the state? I think replacing national banks with yeah. something that's called distributive currencies, but aren't actually a ways of, of seizing control of the old mechanisms of the state of the of the twentieth century state. I I think that digital currencies are absolutely absolutely have that capacity, but that needs to be distinguished from crypto, from or at least blockchain technologies. Uh, and digi digital currencies are another story. I mean, digital currencies and, and are, are absolutely a means of centralizing power, uh, surveillance, um, right. capturing the power of data, because the, the, you know, the, the one the, the state has, and we particularly considering where we are now two years into the pandemic, um, this is this is an area where just the capture of data is one of the great powers of the state. Um, but I, I think that the the surveillance capacities and also the, the nature of digital currencies are quite different from the distributed nature of blockchain technology. And I, I don't see the same uh, potential for political disruption with blockchain technologies. Um, in the same, in, I, I don't, I don't see the capacity for because a fundamental aspect of political action is collective action. It's good stuff, Dorit. Uh, uh, in 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 uh, one of your recent television appearances, as I said earlier, you contrasted Orbán and Macron, suggesting that there was a struggle for the soul of Europe. Is Orbán now borrowing the Chinese playbook? I mean, obviously, uh, lots of comparisons between Orban and Putin, but it seems as if the Chinese are perfecting a model of a, a surveillance capitalist state much more effectively than the, than the, than the Russians. 
Yes, I, I do think that China is is uh, somewhat of a model for, for Orban, absolutely. And exactly the idea of state-led capitalism, that, that you can develop a market society that doesn't have to be the American version of it, uh, or, or, the, or the British version of it, for that matter, uh, which is deeply state-led, which is very, very strongly linked to the ruling party. I mean, the, Hungary doesn't have the equivalent of the Communist Chinese Party, but Orban's Fidesz Party um, is pretty close to being one party rule. And one party rule, not just in terms of ruling the, the country politically, but also economic dominance. All right, it's, it's really, um, we'll all have to go back and read Lenin, and particularly the best critic of Lenin, who was, uh, of course, Rosa Luxemburg, who probably would be one of the people around today who wouldn't be surprised with what's happening in Hungary. Uh, Dorit, uh, um, few, uh, about a year ago, I had the wonderful um, biographer of liberalism and conservatism on the show, Edmund Fawcett, the old economist um, writer. Uh, and he has this wonderful phrase. I've used it many times. He said, were politics chess? Liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives, who began as anti-moderns, came to master modernity. For the right was, in telling ways, the stronger contestant. And there's an eerie prescience, I think, to, to that point of, in terms of Orban, because he really is modernizing conservatism, isn't he? Or is he making it viable for the 21st century and and the left is really failing to keep up is that fair yes i well he, i think i think that's fair yes i think he's he is a highly innovative figure uh he uh really i mean his version of conservatism is also strongly nationalist not all conservatism is but I think that's that's where we are in the 21st century, that conservatism is very strongly becoming linked with a strong commitment to the nation, to nationalism. Uh, and that's and that's actually his 21st uh, century version of it. I, I've it reminds me a little bit. I mean, I'm skipping to other research that I've done uh, in France, actually, because I also did research on, on members of the French National French National Front. And I'm, I'm remembering a young woman university student um, whom I interviewed, uh, who said to me that one of the reasons that she finds the French National Front very appealing is that because she, she finds the commitment to the nation to be a very modern concept, that for her, Europe and the European Union and cosmopolitanism was mm. old fashioned. That's the 20th century, but the 21st century is the century of the nation. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. You uh, teach at the Central European University, which is of course famously funded by George Soros. Um, who uh, Orban has focused on as the sort of symbol of everything that's gone wrong in the world, as a Jew, as an international financier. I was uh, on your Hungarian campus about three or four years ago interviewing your former rector, yes. Michael Ignatia, a wonderful man, Canadian political theorist, very much influenced by Isaiah Berlin. We actually had him on this show recently with uh, Anne Applebaum, I'm, I'm curious, On what, one of the things that struck me about the old Budapest campus, I know you've moved now to Vienna, is that there was a room dedicated to Karl Popper 
and a room dedicated to Ernest Gellner, the Czech, British Czech sociologist, critic of nationalism. Gellner, of course, a supporter of science. Are Gellner and Popper, in your view, effective antidotes to um, to Orban and this new kind of conservatism? Or, or should Soros be building a, a, perhaps a, a Gramsci room or a Marx room or some other room to counter Orban? I would certainly not say that Popper is is the uh, is the recipe to counter Orban. Not in terms of real politics. Did you go uh, in the Popper room, Dorit, in in Budapest? Course, or did you hold your Or did you hold your nose when you went past it? No, I didn't. I didn't at all. I'm I, I'm not saying this as I'm not a critic of of Popper as a philosopher. But my my point is rather that politics, especially politics in the 21st century is an affair of the heart. It's not an affair of the mind. This is what populists, this is the right. world that populists have understood and built upon. It's, it's the world of dig, digital media. It's the world of where politics has, has become uh, simplified into a series of quick emotions that are supposed to be produced. Yeah, it's not a format and as, um... As Gellner suggested in uh, in his wonderful book on nationalism, nationalism isn't just false consciousness; it's real. It's real, and it's it it creates real feelings of commitment, solidarity, and belonging. And I think this is something this is something that Gellner understood absolutely understood. He wasn't he didn't he wasn't comfortable with it, but he understood that this was a reality of nationalism. Uh, and 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 now in the 21st century, um, in conjunction with the proliferation of digital media and and the digitization of politics, um, uh, politics have become more than ever a form of entertainment. I mean, it's supposed to produce. But it's more than entertainment. Uh, Hannah Arendt has become very fashionable these days for her notions of the banality of evil. Um, he, she famously said, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between true and false no longer exist. Um, but it's more than that. These people are not just postmodernists. They actually believe in what they say. Orban believes in what he say. And there's some truth. I mean, there is a Hungarian nation. These are not just fictions, right? Yeah, yes, but my, my point is not about the nature of the political leaders. Also, I'm not sure how much Orban always believes the things that he says. Um, I, well, who I, does, Dorit? Do you believe everything you say? Absolutely. Oh, good. Well, you're a professor. Uh, I'm not, so I don't have to believe everything I say. Um, well, but some of us are, are a little more strategic about what we say uh, than others. So, um, I, I mean, I, I think that populists like Orban, of course, Donald Trump as another uh, figure, um, are very attuned in this day and age to the emotional effects, effects of their words. The emotional effect is, uh, is of prime importance to, to the words that they utter and, and the imagery that... that uh, but it's they... all imagery. We had Ruth uh, Ben-Ghiat on the show last year. She, she wrote a best-selling book, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. 
she famously quotes Berlusconi, who she sees as sort of one of the the forefathers of contemporary yes. authoritarianism. If something doesn't appear on television, it doesn't exist. Is there some quality to that in, in Orban? Is is he also an, an inheritor of Berlusconi's obsession with image and media? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, one thing that the Orban regime is brilliant at is their media spin. They are the best of the best. They are the best of the best. Uh, and not necessarily even through the most sophisticated means. I mean, the billboard campaigns, the the press releases uh, are sometimes very blunt instruments, but they're very good at spin. But How do we get at these people, Dorit? Um, uh, a couple of months ago, I had Dorotia Redeye. Uh, she was one of Time Magazine's 100 people for this year. Uh, she was the editor of an LGBTQ fairy, a book of fairy tales in Hungary, which really pissed off the Orban regime. Um, is 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 now is now the battle a cultural one, and do we need more Dorotia red eyes to to to, to challenge the absurdity of, of of Orban and his masculinity? Well, we certainly need more of them. She's a graduate of my university, incidentally. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I was introduced uh, also uh, th through through CEU to yeah. her. Uh, we, yes, we we need more of we need more Dorotias, uh, but I I mean we need I think we need more than that. Uh, but it's I I don't have any easy answers. I. I'm really convinced, I mean, as somebody who's been studying up close uh, the populist radical right for almost a decade, including ethnography and interviews, um, I, am, I feel very fairly confident in saying that the followers of these political leaders uh, don't, ha don't necessarily follow them because of, because they believe in their policies or or they don't necessarily have extremely sophisticated accounts of the fetus government's policies on taxation and pensions and welfare reform um, or in the case of the french national front that they don't necessarily follow Marine le pen because of Marine le pen's foreign policy um outlook they i think they are very moved by political figures who who move them that that's the point that i said earlier i mean politics is really an affair of emotions right so 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 you say you don't have any easy answers isn't that the problem answers. of progressives is that they haven't come up with easy answers and if you come up with complicated sociology ridden yeah. critiques of of people like orban you by definition lose and that's why well the i conservatives think that, are winning this 21st yeah. century game of chess then the answer in in this moment has to also be the left politics have to become again an affair of the heart and right. that was lost that was really lost from the 1980s what about uh feminism and the affairs of the heart when it comes to the women's movement um i talked to agnesia graf from poland uh, she has a new book out anti-gender politics in the populist movement she sees the heart of orban as an assault on women around the world and this sort of internationalist conservatism. Is there a populist feminist response to this that might make sense, that might catch fire? I, 
I can't think of one, but I'm sure there are attempts. Um, uh, I mean, populism in its simplest definition is a movement which is against elites and claims to represent the people. Populism actually is very simple in its content. Bernie uh, Sanders, AFC. Yes, so I think those are figures who have understood the moment. I think AOC and Bernie Sanders are exactly, they absolutely understand. And they're not winning in the United States. They're, yes, uh, they're not winning, that's true. They're not winning in the United States. Um, I mean, I think that uh, for one, AOC is, hampered by being a female figure. I, I think female politicians and also for female populists, uh, there, there's a limit to, it, it's Even always- Even who you've written about extensively? Yeah, so absolutely, yes. I mean, there's 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 a limit to the extent to which she appeals to, to a wide public. Um, the left uh, struggle with, I, I mean, of course, it's extremely um, embattled in terms of what is even the definition of the left in the 21st century. Uh, I do think that there are figures, I mean, I have to say, for example, there's a very interesting figure in France uh, who, um, Christiane Taubira, she was the former justice minister who just tease the French public by suggesting that she might also make a, a run for the presidential elections, uh, which will happen next spring in France. Uh, and she, to me, is a really interesting figure because she is a woman, she is a woman of color, um, but she speaks uh, in a way that, um, that rings of authenticity. I think this is often a problem with figures on the left uh, which is how, how do you uh, how do you convey political messages in a way that really can that really have a feeling of authenticity? Uh, to me, Christiane Taubira is an interesting figure because I think she can do that. Of course, she's still the object of a, of a lot of uh, racist um, trolling on on the part of the far right uh, in France, uh, but. It, she to me is a is a sign of somebody who who maybe can stir emotions who who has the ability to both balance actually very sophisticated uh policy conceptions she has she has a really good political background and um and quite simply she's likable people like her uh the the left yes continues i mean all over the world the, the left continues to struggle with this but you know i live so I live now in Vienna. I've been here for two years. Vienna, with the exception of a very notable exception of its fascist history, has had almost a century of, of um, rule by the Socialist Party. It's called Red Vienna. The history is Red Vienna, and, and it's still known as Red Vienna. And what's interesting to me it's very interesting to me as a model because Vienna is a very affluent, I mean, it has affluence. So it has that going for it. It has yeah. revenue. Um, but uh, it has managed to offer a, a, a kind of compromise that, that uh, citizens 
continue to support, which is that it is a strong welfare state. I mean, this is true in Austria. Taxation yeah, it just got voted the best city in the world to live the in. Quality, yes, it has. Yeah, very it contrasted dramatically with San Francisco as a kind of post, as a, a post-liberal or uh, yes. dystopia. Uh, I was in uh, Vienna again to, after interviewing Ignatiev. I interviewed Ivan Krastev, who sees uh, uh, Vienna as the model for liberalism in the 21st century. So it's a really interesting idea. Uh, Dorit uh, gave a wonderful talking to you. Um, you've had a number of articles out. You've had books in the past. Uh, what else should people be reading these days to make sense of a world that's rapidly changing? I think Shoshana Zuboff's book on surveillance capitalism. Yeah, we've had Shoshana on the show, absolutely which I am currently devouring. I had heard of it and I happened to come across it in an airport bookshop of all things, bought it and haven't put it down since. It is one of those books that to me just opens a vista and makes sense of so much. It's one of those books that you keep on going, ah, right. Hmm. It all The Age of Surveillance yeah. Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. Uh, yes. Shoshana, I actually blurbed that book. Uh, it was a real honor, wonderful yeah. book. Uh, Professor Dorit Geva from the Central European University, a real honor to have you on the show. You're one of the people making sense of our world as it changes so dramatically. Keep up the good interpretation, uh, uh, Dorit. Um, I'd love to have you back on the show in the new year to talk more about Orban and this new internationalist conservatism, which is reshaping not just Europe, but the world. Thank you so much. Happy pleasure. holidays. Keep well, and we'll talk to you in the new year. Thanks.